Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 133. This is the blessings of unity. The blessings of unity. We'll continue till we finish our Psalms, and then we'll take up another study after we finish going through the Psalms. We've come this far, starting with the first Psalm. I have probably, I don't know, at least 40 or 50 tapes on this series of Psalms. And this is the third time we've been through them at various times in the history of this church. But this is one of the dearest Psalms I think you'll find in in the whole, and it's only three verses here. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Christian unity is more blessed than, the, than any unity in the flesh. National unity is based upon law, and all man-made organizations, labor, fraternal, and political, are based upon rules and mutual interests. But Christian unity is based upon love. In Acts 4, verse 32, it speaks of the church, in the early church, it says, And great grace was upon them all. John says, We know we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. That's 1 John chapter 3, and verse 14. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. What's the best evidence that you're a child of God? Jesus gave it to you right there. He says, By this shall all men know. Will they know by your miraculous works? Will they know by uh, how uh, you are outgoing in the community or about your uh, outstanding uh, witness or testimony? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. This is one of the greatest testimonies you can have as a Christian. In Ephesians 4 verse 3 it says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so Christian unity is worth all. Paul warns us to avoid those who cause divisions. Let me read this in Romans 16. Listen carefully. Romans 16, verse 17. Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine, that's the teaching, which ye have learned, and avoid them. So in order to have Christian unity, you have to have Christian doctrine. And you have to have it, you have to have one endeavor You have to be of one mind, of one heart, of one spirit. And also you need to be taught the doctrines of grace and of faith in order to have unity. Unity is and fellowship is based upon a mutual uh, understanding of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 1, I want to read these verses. Uh, John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, he's speaking of Christ, manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life. Now he says, Our eyes have seen, our hands have handled. We've actually held him. And uh, he says, And we have seen, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard declaring we unto you. Now listen, here it is. That ye also may have fellowship with us, with John the Apostle and the other apostles. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So true Christian fellowship is based upon an understanding of the person of Christ, of the manifestation of Christ as the Son of God, of the person who is the eternal life, of the deity of Christ. All of these things are necessary for real Christian unity and fellowship. Back in our psalm, hold your place in the psalm. 
Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And then it says, It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. The spirit of unity is like the precious ointment. By the way, the precious ointment is symbolical of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that has just uh, saturated us. This precious ointment contains a sweet odor. It's a pleasant odor. And it's enjoyed by all present. It's like oil. It spreads. And it runs down. And it remains. And it stays with you. You know, the Holy Spirit is not a person that just comes and leaves and is gone. And then all of a sudden, you know, you don't have the Holy Spirit anymore. The Bible tells us that He... Uh, in whom you also trusted, listen, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, or upon believing, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. He's a permanent abiding presence. And it says, which is the earnest, that's Ephesians 1.13, verse 14 says, which is the earnest or pledge or guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. He's there until we receive our inheritance in glory. Jesus says He is with you and shall be in you and will remain in you, abide in you forever. And so, the Holy Spirit's presence, this spirit of unity is like the precious ointment. It's like the Holy Spirit's presence that ran down. The anointing presence, the emblem of brotherly love. Love spreads. It's like oil, as we said. It spreads and it runs down and it remains and stays with you. Have you ever had a little bottle of oil of any kind, sweet oil or camphophonique or something that's oily, and you get a little bottle of that, and you say, I'm going to have to get a new bottle of that oil because this is run out. And you know you keep on using that, and you keep on using that. Did you know oil is the, the hardest thing in the world to completely drain out? It is. You just don't drain it out. You can take a bottle of water and you can pour every drop of it out. But oil, it's hard to get at all. Remember in the, when you'd go in the filling stations and you, they had used to put oil, the service station used to put oil in your car. You don't do it anymore. You service yourself. But anyway, they'd have this barrel out in the back and the thing fixed. And after they poured the quart oil in your car, they'd go and pour about a half a quart in the thing out there and save it all, wouldn't they? Because it just kept running. And you know the Holy Spirit is rather indispensable too. And, and you, you just can't get rid of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the presence of, of love either. There's no way to do away with that. Uh, the Bible speaks that Christ, it says concerning Christ Jesus, uh, God the Father speaking concerning the Son, and He says, unto the Son He saith, Thou art God. And He says, Thou, thou hast the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Thy kingdom. He says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Now listen. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness, the Holy Spirit, above thy fellows. The Bible says in John's Gospel, He giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. So Christ was filled with the Holy Spirit. After his baptism, it says the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. Or he was full of the Holy Spirit as he went into the wilderness temptation. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, he was also filled with the Word of God and, and he answered Satan's temptations and the accusations and the temptations by the Word of God. 
every time, and thus he returned in the power, it says, of the Spirit. If you and I can take the lessons that Jesus taught us there. When the devil is tempting you, you be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then when you use the Word of God, you'll come out of that wilderness temptation in the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, Whom resist steadfast in the faith, your adversary the devil. It says, It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran, ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. And then verse 3 says, As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there, there, the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. The fruits of unity. The snow of Mount Hermon was taken up in a vapor and descended upon the hills and the valleys in the form of dew, resulting in the flowers and the trees and the gardens. And so the result and the fruits of the Holy Spirit are to be seen in the Christian. What does Paul say? The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. Amen. The fruit of the Spirit. You, you, talk, you see people talking about how they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. But I want, you, I want to see some fruit of that Holy Spirit in your life. Amen. You know? And that is more than you saying you're full of the Holy Ghost. Or you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's better to be filled with the Holy Spirit than to say that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Psalm 140, uh, 134. Here's another short one. Three, three verses as well. And this is a psalm of praise. This is the last of those pilgrim psalms. 120 through 134. Fifteen in all of the pilgrim psalms. We told you when we approached uh, Psalm 120 how they began the pilgrim psalms. And before the pilgrims left the temple to return home, they expressed their thanks to the Levites, these servants of God, to the priests and the watchmen, all those that served the Lord in His house. And this is an expression of their thanks. It says, Behold, bless ye the Lord, all ye His servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord. They are called servants of the Lord. We should be thankful that God has servants. We should be thankful for God's servants of yesterday. Remember when Joshua came on the scene, God said to Joshua, He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. He says, Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan. He says, I had servants in the past. Now you become a servant. The servants of the past we should thank God for. You know, I'm ever grateful and mindful of the fact of the teaching and the preaching that I received in the Bible Baptist Seminary years ago. I'm mindful of the fact, had it not been humanly speaking, for those servants of God, I wouldn't be able to stand before you tonight. You wouldn't have the church you have. We wouldn't be here together as a church family. I mean, God worked it out through others that were servants, and we're thankful for servants of the past. And I'm so thankful that I sat under some of the greatest Bible teachers, I believe, of this, uh, this century, really, as far as Bible teachers. And uh, I'm so thankful for that. Dr. Peter Connolly, Dr. Earl K. Oldham, Dr. Frank Norris, Dr. Uh, George Norris. I wasn't under Dr. Frank, J. Frank Norris, but his son, George Norris. Louis Ensminger, uh, Dr. Godsoe, Frank A. Godsoe. And talk about believing in a local New Testament church. If you don't believe in a local New Testament church after you've sat under him, you never will believe in it. But I'll guarantee you, you'll have to believe something when you leave him. Because he was a local New Testament church man. 
He's got a, a book on the church that Jesus built. Uh, there, there are many wonderful preachers and teachers of the past that all of us owe a great deal to. Servants of God. Paul says concerning himself. Let me read this for you. In the book of Romans chapter 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 1. When he says a servant of Jesus Christ, he means a bond servant or a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And think of what, where we would be today if there had not been the Apostle Paul. Think of all the New Testament books that were written by the Apostle Paul. Think of his missionary journeys. Think of his endeavors. Think of his charge to, to young preachers, Titus and Timothy especially. And the instruction we have for pastors and for, and for deacons that are given. And how that he put a foundation under the, the ministry by his instructions that will that stands today. And we stand for today and up on it today. How thankful we should be for leaders of the past and servants of the past. By the way, we should thank God for the servants who stood by night. The early Christians during the night time of, of, uh, of our history. The reformers and the martyrs that stood during the dark ages and gave their lives for what you and I now enjoy as a freedom to preach and teach just like we do today. Do you know we owe a lot to the past, don't we? We owe a lot to people that died and would not deny the Lord Jesus Christ and would stand for the doctrines of grace and of faith. We owe a lot to those those old other folks. And... Paul, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, let me read something for you. Hebrews 11, he reads, calls the role of the heroes of faith, and he starts with, uh, with uh, Abel and Enoch and uh, Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and, and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and various others. And he comes down to Samson and Gideon, David also, and Samuel the prophets. And he tells what all they did. And you come down to verse 35. He says, women received their life, uh, their dead raised to life again. And others. Have you ever thought about others? You say, all those great ones that you named. Well, we know Abraham and Isaac. And we know Moses. And we know David. And we know Joshua. And we know all those great men. And it says, others were tortured. Not accepting deliverance. That they might obtain a better resurrection. And it says, and others. Twice over it says others. These are unnamed heroes of faith. This says others. We don't know how many others. In Paul's day, there were others. And in our day, there were many others because we've stretched the period of uh, 2,000 years since the days of the Jesus and the apostles. And it says, and others had trial of cruel mockings and scourging, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. And you can relate this to the Dark Ages as well as the time that Paul was telling about others that suffered for the sake of Christ. And he says, they were stoned, and he's speaking of the Old Testament saints of God. They were sawn asunder, sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And then it says, of whom the world was not worthy. I guess not. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. They had to hide from the opposition and persecution. And it says, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, 
received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. He extended all of their sufferings and all that they endured even down unto us, as Paul quoted. And we know that you could bring that into the present, that they without us, the martyrs during the dark ages, would not be made perfect. So God has one purpose in view, and that is to glorify all His children together at one time in the future. We can look forward to that time. So, we owe a lot to those of the past. And then, leaders today need to be encouraged. Leaders today. It says, uh, Behold, bless ye the Lord, all ye His servants, uh, all ye servants of the Lord, which not, by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. The, the Lord hath made heaven and earth. Bless, uh, bless thee out of Zion. So we find that the servants of God and the leaders of God today need to be encouraged. In the house of God, it says. That stand in the house of the Lord. We stand in the local church today. In the book of Hebrews chapter 13, it says this. In verse 17 and 18, it says, Obey them that have the rule over you. That means the guide, by the way. It's not a dictatorship that guides you. Obey them that have the rule over you. And submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account. Did you know pastors and preachers and teachers are accountable for you and for what you're taught? James says, Be not many masters. We need to have teachers that are responsible for uh, what they teach. We can't just get up here and start popping off and saying things uh, without having some basis for saying and preaching the Word and the truth. That's not to be done. That's done on radio and television when you find the news announcers. They can say it and give it out and then the next day say, well, you know, it wasn't that way. Somebody else said it was another way. They can go ahead. But we, we can't make those kind of Apologies. We have to preach, thus saith the Lord. It's what God's Word says. That they, as they which give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And it says, pray for us. For we trust we have a good conscience in all things willingly to live honestly. So he says, pray for us. And we go on, the passage of Scripture encourages uh, you to pray for your leaders today. Paul said, uh, uh, pray for me also. Let me read in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. It says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And then Paul says, And for me, and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, if the beloved Apostle Paul, as great a man as he was, and servant of God as he was, needed to say and pray for me, how much more do preachers today say, pray for me? And I, I want you, as uh, members of this church, and as Christian brothers and sisters, and as ones that love the Lord, to pray for me. And pray for Brother Randy as we try to rightly divide the word of truth, for we have... Uh, a responsibility. You know, the greatest servant of all was Jesus. The Bible says the Son of Man, He says the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Minister means to serve. 
It says he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So it's being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. And he took upon him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He is the greatest servant. He was God's chosen servant. The priests are exhorted to praise the Lord in this chapter because the servants, the priests, did come forth and bless the people. And we find that uh, as preachers, we have a priestly function in a sense that we're to be under shepherds or elders among the flock. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder. He was an elder in age as well as an elder. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God. Here's a charge to us. Feed the flock of God. uh, Which is among you. By the way, it would be a local flock then, wouldn't it? Which is among you. Local church. Taking the oversight thereof. Not by constraint but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, not just for money, but of a ready mind. And it says, neither as being lords over God's heritage, dictators, no, not that, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. That's the charge to to the under shepherds of the flock, to, to preachers and Teachers of the Word of God. And then the priest back in our psalm, the Lord that made heaven and earth bless thee out of Zion. The priest pronounced a blessing upon the people as they leave. And if the Lord was able to make heaven and earth, He could bless His people, and He has blessed His people. The church where we worship is a channel through which many of our blessings come, both heavenly and earthly. It says, bless thee out of Zion. Zion is symbolical of the church that uh, is to be a blessing on the earth today till Jesus comes again. God commands His blessing where peace is cultivated. Jesus gave the commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And after that commission, also in Matthew 28, we find in Luke chapter 24, it says this, And He led them out as far as Bethany, And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. He came forth with that blessing before he sent it into heaven. I want you to look at the next psalm, if you will, quickly. Psalm 135. We're trying to cover as many of these psalms as we can. And there are many good lessons in each and every one of them. But I want you to notice here a psalm of praise. This is a medley or review of various psalms that that are included here. It says, Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the name of the Lord, praise Him, O ye servants of the Lord. First of all, praise is the highest form of worship we can give. We should offer thanks and praise to God continually. This is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name, it said in Hebrews chapter 13. And it says, With such sacrifices God is well pleased. Who is to praise the Lord? Servants and those that stand in His house. Verse 2 says, Ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. The servants of God and those that stand in the house of God. The leaders as well as the people. We all stand in the house of God. Preachers and teachers and deacons and laymen, they stand in the house of God. And then every member of the church stands in the house of God. And so from the, from the pew to the pulpit, we're all to be thankful and praise the Lord for what He has done for us. 
And then why? Why are we to praise the Lord? Look at these next verses. Verses 3 through 5. First of all, it says, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. God is good to us. Sing praises unto His name, for it is pleasant. In other words, we need to praise the Lord for His goodness. Look at verse 4. We need to praise the Lord for His electing grace. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto Himself, and Israel for His peculiar treasure. He chose us. Jesus says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. God chose us. The Bible says we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Someone says, well, I had to make a choice and, and believe on Christ. Yes, you did. But He chose you at, uh, to, for that purpose. And He called you. And finally, you said, you know, I'm reminded of what Dr. Kemp used to say. He says people get bogged down in election and predestination and foreordination and then the free will of man to choose and to be saved. He says it's like this. He says, you, on the outside of the door and over the door, it says, I'm the door. By me, if any man shall enter in, he shall be saved. Well, that's the invitation to us. We open the door. We turn that knob. We walk inside. Jesus says, I'm the door. I'm the door. And so we enter in. We trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we made a choice by opening the door. But then we look back over the head of that door when we get inside and it says, Chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Is there any contradiction? None whatsoever. God told us what to do and we did it. And then we found out what He had already done. He had already chosen us. So there's no con conflict. Have you ever stood in the middle of a railroad track and you see those two rails going down oh, at a distance and they'll go way out in the country and across the pasture and way down as far as you, I can see? And look down there a ways and it looks like they just cross each other. But if you walk down there, they don't cross each other. They still stay parallel. That's the way the doctrines of grace and of faith are. They do not contradict each other. Man has made a lot of contradictions, but God didn't make any. He, he laid it down in His Word. And these doctrines, you, you make a choice. The Bible says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and thou shalt be saved. Right? Well, that's our part to believe, isn't it? And then it says, As many as were ordained unto eternal life, believed. Is there any contradiction? Not, so, not whatsoever. Because God says He knew what was going to happen. And he knew, he knows all about it, but he gives us the choice to accept him or reject him. So we find here God's electing grace. Look at verse four: For the Lord had chosen Jacob unto Himself and Israel for His peculiar treasure. Remember when He chose them, he, did, he said, "I have not chosen you because you were better than all the other people." He says, "The Lord set His love upon you." In the book of Deuteronomy, and He says, He said He chose them out of all nations to be a people unto Himself. Well, why didn't he choose some of those other nations? Because it was his sovereign grace that chose the nation of Israel. We need to praise God for his electing grace. Israel could praise him for national election, and we have a personal election. And we're a peculiar treasure unto him. Look at verse 5. And then we need to praise him for his greatness. For I know that the Lord is great. Remember we sing, how great thou art. How great thou art. The Lord is great. And that our Lord is is above all gods. He's not to be compared to other gods. And then we see something else, the proof of His greatness. Look at verse 6. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did He in heaven. He did as He pleased. He's sovereign. And in earth, and in the seas, and in deep places. He is the Lord of all the universe. 
The next verse it shows he's the Lord of all of the elements. Verse 7. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of his treasures. That's why we pray that God will send us rain, because he has a control over it. You see, man cannot control that. Remember the old days they used to have these rain makers? Well, you know, they can seed the clouds, but they can't make the clouds come. You've got to have the cloud before you can seed the clouds, right? God has to send something before you can do anything about it. I was reminded when we was praying for rain the other time, last Wednesday night, I think we mentioned it, and the Wednesday before, or, and uh, I was thinking of back in Elijah's day. And you know, the weather map doesn't show any rain in this area at all. It just shows dry. And it may be. We don't know. God will send it when He gets ready. But I'm saying this, that Elijah looked out there and he prayed after the drought. He said, God, send the rain. He says, it's been a long time. Didn't rain for what? Three and a half years. And, uh, and Elijah started praying for rain. He looked up there and he says, he told his servant, go out and look, see if you see anything. He said, no, I don't see anything. Sent him again and again. Finally went out. He says, I see a little cloud the size of a man's hand. <laughs> you know what Elijah said? He says, you go and tell Ahab there's a flood coming to get out of here. <laughs> little cloud the size of a man's hand. We don't know when. God can send rain out of a lot of things. But anyway, he is he's Lord, look, over the elements. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh the lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of his treasures. Look at verse 8. We find he sends plagues upon the enemies to accomplish his will, who smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. Why did he smite the firstborn of Egypt? Because they would not let his people go. And God says, listen, I told you to let my firstborn son go and you won't let him go. And Pharaoh kept hardening his heart and hardening his neck. And finally, God, you know, he'd send one warning after another and one judgment after another. And finally, he says, the death of the firstborn. And old Pharaoh hardened his heart again. And he says, there'll be a way for God's people to escape the death of the firstborn in their houses because I'm going to give them the introduce the Passover and they're going to kill a lamb and they're going to take the blood from the basin where they... Uh, shed the blood of that lamb and put it on the lintel in the side post. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. I'm glad that's in the Bible because it's applicable today. When he sees the blood of Christ applied to us, our heart's door by faith, I will pass over you. In other words, the judgment will not fall upon us. The judgment will not fall upon us. Uh, because if you have the blood applied by faith to yourself with that hyssop of faith, take the hyssop, apply the blood to the Lentil in the side post. Listen. If you have the blood applied, you're safe. And the judgment will not fall upon you. Someone says, how do you know, preacher, that the judgment won't fall upon you? Because God said so. That's how I know. There's no other way you know. There's no other way you know. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, believe that God sent him, believe that God the Father is in heaven, he's the Son of God, sent to this earth. He says, believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting, hath, right now, present possession, everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation or judgment, that final great judgment, but is passed from death unto life. In other words, you're exempt from that great judgment. Oh, there's a judgment seat of Christ for believers, but we're not talking about that. 
We're talking about judgment that would separate you from uh, God eternally. We're talking about that great, great final day of judgment, that great white throne judgment. And it says you're already passed from death unto life, and that's eternal life. Because we're not passed, passed from physical death unto life, are we? Because we're going to die physically. Unless Jesus comes, then we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the sound of the trumpet. But uh, we're passed from spiritual death to spiritual life or eternal life. And the one that is that, and he says he shall not come into condemnation. And the word means it's crisis or that final great judgment that's referred to. So you're safe and secure. You know, I believe in the security of the believer. But you must be a believer to be secure. If you're a true believer, you are secure. Many people, you know, say, well, if I'm secure, I'll, you know, do this and that and the other. But if you're a true believer, you are secure. But that's not made as a, an umbrella to put everybody that just has a, a little profession here and there without any true validity to it and repentance and faith toward God. It's not meant for that purpose. But it is meant for those who have truly come and believed on Jesus who died on the cross and shed His blood for our sins to make atonement for our sins and to provide for our salvation. The security is there. Okay? It says in verse 80, "...who smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who sent tokens of wonders in the midst of thee, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and upon all his servants." That's the judgments. He sent the plagues. He worked his wonders. It says, who smote great nations and slew mighty kings. He rules the kings of the earth. Daniel says he removes kings and set, uh, sets up kings. Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdom, kingdoms of Canaan. Remember Sion and Og, the ones that were uh, judged. And uh, when uh, Joshua got ready to go over into Canaan's land, old Rahab says, you know, the fear of you... Rest upon all the Canaanites because we have heard what God did for you against Sihon and Og, king of Bashan. And the fear of you and the dread of you is upon all the, the people of the land. See, God, the Lord, won the battle for them before they ever crossed over to Jericho. Because He had already sent fear into their hearts. And they were going to run away. And so they did have to go in and conquer the land. There are other things that transpired. But God had already prepared the hearts. You know, the battle is won in the mind before you and I ever uh, physically make the contact. Some of the things we pray about, that's the way it's won. We pray about our purchase of land. We pray about all these various other things. See, the, ba- the battle and the, the problem is won before we ever get there to do the talking. Because God prepares the hearts of those that we deal with. Some of you have heard of what we purchased this piece of ground right in front of us. And I'll give you the details of it sometime. It's in the making. And honestly, we've already given the details when we voted on taking it on a Wednesday night service. Honestly, it's almost a miracle that it was worked into our possession and is being done right now, being carried out in the wheels of Legality turns slowly, but it'll all be there. It's all promised and signed, sealed, and delivered, basically. Surveyed and laid out. These three lots of go straight out, including those two big planters, is going to, the Lord willing, belong to the church very soon with a 
26.15% discount of the praise value plus an additional amount of the land that we didn't even figure on getting. And Randy, I had I calculated it out and was showing Randy one day how much that additional land was. Do you know what it is? Another $10,000 worth of land thrown in our lap because of the change of the boundary line, including the full lot. Well, now only God can do that. And He will do it if we'll pray and work it out in the right way. And we hope to have it. There's no penalty for early payment. We want to raise a little bit of money and pay it off ahead of time. So we won't have... Then if we ever have to have need, if we get this congregation full, this building full, which we've almost had several times, and one of these days when it is full and when we have all the pews filled and we need some space, we can build us an auditorium out there, use this for our uh, uh, young people and fellowship hall and various other things. And baptistry will still be here. And, and have a nice big building for a sanctuary, place of worship. God is able to do that. But He won't do it if we sit and do nothing, if we don't take advantage of opportunities. Like the old boy, you know, he says, Lord, I thought you'd save me. He says, I was drowning down there. And he says, uh, you know, I kept praying that you'd save me. And finally drowned. He went to heaven. And the Lord says, well, I sent three boats by you and you wouldn't get in any one of them. So, you know, sometimes we just don't get in the boat when it's sent by. And uh, when God sends the opportunity by, you better get in the boat if you want to be saved. Where were we? Down here on the, the kings. We'll give you this in closing. Our time's about gone. The Verse uh, 12, And gave their land for an heritage, and heritage uh, unto Israel and his people. What does he do? He, he literally gave Israel an inheritance, and we have a spiritual inheritance. The Bible says that He has an inheritance for us that's incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith and salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Look at that again. We'll have to close. We won't have time to say all this. But listen. An inheritance. What is it? The inheritance itself is incorruptible. Inheritances upon this earth are corruptible. It's incorruptible. It fadeth not away. And it's reserved in heaven for you. You say, well, you know, there's inheritances on this earth that are reserved for us. But sometimes if something happens and the lawyers get in there or legal terms get in there or someone else comes out of the woodworks, I may not get it, you know. And that's possible too and it's happened. But listen, God says it's reserved in heaven for you and He's going to make sure you get it. He says, who are kept by the power of God through faith and salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. So listen, what does he say? He's saying, I not only have an inheritance reserved for you, but I'm going to keep you for it 